maybe a few of us. They were written by a famous rock band back in the 1970s. Anyone know who it was? What the song was? It is Led Zeppelin, that's right, well done. And the song, Stairway to Heaven, there's a picture of Led Zeppelin up there in their, their lovely 1970s haircuts. Well, Stairway to Heaven was a song about a woman who was buying her way to heaven. Buying her way to heaven. It's a very popular belief today, isn't it? That knowing God, getting to heaven, is about what we do. Well, in Genesis 28, this morning, we're given a very different picture of what it means to know God, of what it means to long for heaven. As we see God's calling Jacob to himself through an incredible dream. Before we get to it, let's start by recapping what we know about Jacob so far in the Genesis story. Back in chapter 25, before Jacob's birth, God had spoken an oracle to his mother, Rebekah. God had told her she was going to give birth to twins, brothers, the elder Esau and the younger Jacob. But God had decided that in his sovereignty, Jacob would be the younger of the two, and yet he would rule over his brother, Esau. God had chosen Jacob to receive the family inheritance, and what an incredible inheritance it was. The great promises that God had made to his grandfather, Abraham, promise of land, of a great people, and blessing, that through Abraham and Abraham's descendants, God would bless the world. He would restore man's relationship with himself, which was broken by sin. Isaac, Abraham's son, received those promises. And then, as we saw last week, earlier in chapter 28, we saw Isaac passing those promises on to Jacob. Although it wasn't exactly a smooth transaction, was it? Isaac, for his own selfish reasons, wanted to give Esau the blessing. Not Jacob, but with plenty of help from his scheming mum, Jacob had tricked his blind father into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. And all the way through, we saw how God in his grace used that dysfunctional family, and particularly Jacob, this conniving cheat, to ensure his plan would succeed. Jacob did receive the inheritance that God had promised. But Jacob's deceit had had some serious consequences as well. Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him. So Jacob's running. His dad Isaac thinks he's going off to get a wife, but Jacob knows better. He knows that he's running for his life. And we're picking up the story in verse 10, where we meet Jacob on the road to Haran. Read with me, 28 from verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Well, Beersheba, all the way to Haran, was a 900-kilometer hike, about 20 days by foot. That makes those Kale City marathons that we sometimes see on a Sunday morning a bit of a joke. Well, having done his first day's hike, Jacob settles down for the night. 
He hasn't got anything with him. He hasn't got any, uh, any camping gear. He obviously left in a hurry. We're told all he can do is find a stone on the ground, and he uses that for a pillow. Verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of, uh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Jacob had been forced out of his comfort zone. He's no longer under the protection of home with his parents. And now, on what looked like it was going to be a very lonely night in the middle of nowhere, God makes himself known to Jacob in this dream. He dreams of this ladder set up on the ground which reaches from the ground all the way up to heaven. And angels are climbing up and down on it. God himself stands at the top of the ladder and speaks to Jacob himself. And through his words we understand what this dream means. God starts by making it clear who he is. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob's father and grandfather. The same God who made those great promises to Abraham. And now, God affirms those wonderful promises to Jacob himself. In verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall, be, uh, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This strange angelic ladder was God's sign to Jacob that he was with him. Just as he was the God of Abraham, just as he was the God of Isaac, so he would be with Jacob. The promises that were theirs would be his. God would give Jacob descendants that would spread across the earth, as far as the north, the south, the east and the west. His descendants would be huge in number like the dust of the earth. And through this offspring, God would bless all the families of the earth. Of course, God had been with Jacob before, ensuring he would inherit the promises. But now, with Jacob leaving home for the first time, full of fear, full of doubt, God assures Jacob that he will be with him. He will keep Jacob, look after him, and one day bring him back home. Was Jacob looking for God at this point? Was he down on his knees begging God for mercy as he fled from home into an unknown place? He wasn't, was he? No, when God reveals himself to Jacob, Jacob's doing nothing. He was asleep on the ground. And up to this point, from what we've been told so far in Genesis, Jacob didn't know God as his God in, in any sense. Just flick back with me to verse, 27 of the previous, uh, verse 20 of the previous chapter. Look at chapter 27, verse 20. Let me just tell you the context first. Isaac is confused because Jacob 
who is pretending to be Esau, has arrived with some food much sooner than expected. We saw this last week. And see what excuse Jacob gives to his father halfway into the verse. Chapter 27, verse 20. Halfway down, he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. The Lord your God granted me success. Not the Lord my God. Jacob's not really interested in having God as his God, but he'll take the blessings God had promised, that of land and people and blessing. They, they sound pretty good. But as for knowing God and having him as his God, no, not so interested in that. Up to this point, Jacob's a deceitful thief who doesn't know God at all. And yet here, in our passage this morning, we see God coming to him, giving Jacob this wonderful dream, demonstrating that he is with Jacob and will not leave him, guaranteeing his promises to Jacob that through Jacob and his offspring, God was going to restore the world to himself. It's incredible. To this guy, this self-centered, manipulating thief. Why? Why does God choose Jacob? That's the same reason God chooses any of us. It's his grace. It's grace. It's God's undeserved kindness to those who are totally unworthy of it. Through this dream, God was showing Jacob his incredible grace, coming down to him to bless him and keep him, that he might bless the world through him. And in verses 16 to 22, we have Jacob's response. It's in two stages. First, he wakes up immediately after that dream. Have a look in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid, and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Suddenly, what was for Jacob an uncertain place earlier, is now a very special place. There's a common idea in the religions of Jacob's day, that the God, that God or the gods, as they thought, had set up several special portals on earth in order to communicate with mankind. And that's what Jacob is thinking of here when he says, surely God is actually in this place. Surely this is the gate of heaven. That's what he was thinking about. But look at how he responds emotionally. We're told he is fearful. For the first time, Jacob has a healthy fear of the Lord. Healthy fear of the Lord starts to grow in his heart. Why is he afraid? Because he's just had an encounter with the true and living God, who is holy and righteous. And Jacob is not. He's a sinner, just like us. From Jacob's response, we can tell he's starting to become aware of his unworthiness before God. So far, we haven't seen any sign of remorse in Jacob's actions. He hadn't felt guilty about stealing Esau's birthright, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, or deceiving his blind father, giving him the family inheritance. But now here, he starts to fear God. He starts to understand his unworthy state before him. It's a positive sign that Jacob, by God's grace, is starting to see things rightly. In Proverbs, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. 
But as we look at the rest of Jacob's response, we see he's still got a lot of growing to do. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, for the name of the city was Luz at first. Jacob calls the place, this unknown place, where he had had his dream, Bethel, which means house of God. And that's just totally appropriate. This is where he had met God, so he calls the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. But Jacob also sets up this pillar, using the stone that he had used as a pillow the night before. It might seem like a reverent act of worship, but it's also the way the pagan religions of Canaan practiced their false worship. Abraham and Isaac before had set up altars when they had come into contact with the living God, and they're approved of in God's law. But Jacob didn't do that. He set up a pillar and poured oil on it. And so we're kind of left to wonder if this innovation in worship is really approved of by God. God in his grace doesn't say anything at the time. But when Jacob's descendants, much later, are about to enter the promised land, God tells them, Deuteronomy 16, it will be coming up on the screen, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Friends, Jacob's stone pillar is not a healthy sign. But what Jacob does next ought to make us scratch our heads when we think this is the guy who will be the father of God's people one day. Have a look at what Jacob does in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Here, in Jacob's first prayer, he goes very wrong. God has graciously given him these incredible promises. He's going to transform the world through him and his descendants. But instead of responding in gratitude and wholehearted submission to the living God, what does Jacob do? He bargains with him. He bargains. Oh dear. Kind of starting to see Jacob's tricky nature from before coming out again, aren't we? He holds out on God, at least for the moment. And he tries to turn God's grace to him into a 50-50 deal. God had chosen Jacob despite his dirty, self-seeking, cheating nature. God came to Jacob when he was in distress and without hope. And now Jacob is saying, Okay, God, I'll let you be my God if X, Y, and Z happen. And what's more, I'll build you a house, God, and I'll give you tenth of everything I have. Even the stone pillar that Jacob had built in worship for gets thrown into this deal. And 
what's really silly about Jacob's bargaining is that God had already promised Jacob all these things. He had told Jacob he would be with him. He would look after him. He would bring him back home safely. But Jacob doubts God's ability to deliver. So he won't trust him at this point. Not entirely. Friends, I wonder if our prayers are a bit like that sometimes. If they reflect that attitude. Especially when we're in quite desperate situations. God, I know I shouldn't have cheated on my taxes, but if you let me get away with it, I'll put extra money in the collection on Sunday. God, if you give me an easy week at work, I'll read my Bible and I'll pray to you twice a day. God, if you just get me through this exam, I'll give you a tenth of my salary as soon as I get my first job. Friends, when we bargain with God like that, we're effectively saying, God, I don't trust you. I feel I need to add something extra to seal the deal, to curry God's favour, so that he really will do things right by me. And friends, God does put us through tough times. And it's in those times that we often grow in our dependence on him and his faithfulness to us. When we pray, we should be taking hold of the promises that he has made to us in faith. He has promised that he will be working in all things for the good of his people, that we might become more like Christ. He's promised to provide everything that we need in order to serve him faithfully as his people. And God delights to hear our prayers. We should pray for our daily needs. And there's nothing wrong with praying for deliverance from particular trials. But let's not turn those faithful prayers into bargaining with God. It's an insult to him and his faithfulness to us. mustn't bring God down to our level in our prayers. If you're struggling with this issue, ask him for humility, for wisdom to trust him. So that even when things don't go the way we hope, even when we're having a tough time, we can rest assured in the knowledge that he is working in all things for our goods. And over the next few weeks we're going to see how God uses Jacob's trials to humble him. Puts Jacob through a very tough time. But in it, Jacob learns to trust God rather than bargain with him. Well, God graciously spoke his promises to Jacob and wonderfully, God continues to speak his promises to us today. Andrew mentioned it earlier. We read in Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, and it's on screen, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. God spoke those wonderful promises to Jacob for a dream. But God has chiefly spoken to us today by his Son, the Lord Jesus. He is where we receive God's promises now. It's in Jesus that we have the promise that God is with us, with his people. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. As God said to Jacob, so Jesus says to us, I am with you always. End of Matthew's Gospel. For Jacob, that meant he would come back and inherit the land of Canaan, 
For us it means that we will inherit our promised land, the new heaven, the new earth. And unlike Jacob, we're to respond, not with bargaining, but with gratitude and submission. And we can do that because God has given us his spirit. The very meaning of Bethel as the house of God is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the house of God now. He is where we meet God. He is the place in which God's fullness dwells. He is God with us. We don't meet God in a city, or in a building, or in a multipurpose pool, or in a shop lot. We meet him in Jesus. Yes, in the Old Testament there were holy places, like Bethel. We don't have those anymore. We have Jesus, and he is our holy place. And now God lives in and among us by his Spirit. We are his living temples, his holy people. One day, at the end of time, we will be with him in the new Jerusalem, in his immediate presence. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember what Jesus said in our New Testament reading in John 1.51? What did he say to his disciple Nathaniel? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Just like the ladder in Jacob's dream, Jesus now says, as the Son of Man, he's the ladder. He's the one that connects heaven and earth. The bridge between God and man. Jesus is the one place where we can stand with Jacob and say, this is the gate of heaven. Because he is the one who dealt with our sin. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he died in our place. As God's son, he suffered the judgments we were facing for our sin. So that by trusting in his death, we might have life with God. This life that Jacob was promised knowing him as our Heavenly Father, experiencing his presence with us, and looking forward to being in the real promised land. Friends, let me ask you, what's your ladder to heaven? What are you relying on to know God and to be known by him? Because there are lots of false ladders to heaven in the world. They're lies that don't need to heaven they lead to hell. We're going to look at two of the common ones. The first false ladder consists of our own achievements. It's one that we try to climb ourselves. We believe that being right with God is about being a good person. Well, my friends back at university in the UK, they, they really held on to that conviction. They thought, God will accept me by what I do. By my own understanding of what it means to be good. Friends, God is quite clear to us in his word. He will not accept us on the basis of our terms, on what we think is good. You see, that's where that Led Zeppelin song got it wrong. Buying our way to heaven through our works, through our moral living, is a lie. Our works and moral actions are filthy rags in God's sight because they're tainted by our sin. By the fact that we have rejected God as the Lord of our lives. We've sinned against him. Paul says in Romans 3, on the screen, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he goes on to say, We are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being right with God is not about what we do. It's about what God in his grace has done for us in Jesus, depending on him. Hey friends, if your ladder to heaven consists of what you do, rather than what Jesus has done at the cross for you, please abandon it. Please don't try and climb that ladder. Because it goes nowhere. Cling on to Jesus. He is the rescue from sin and judgment that God has provided for us his people. Cling on to him. Sometimes, even for those who are already trusting in Christ, even for those of us who are Christian here today, we can still pretend that we're somehow on that false ladder. We're somehow building ourselves up to heaven. I find I do that, especially when I'm mourning over my sin. See, one of Satan's favourite tricks is to tempt us away from clinging onto Christ and to get us relying on our performance as Christians instead. So he tempts us to dwell on our sin in a really unhealthy way, to start thinking, I'm just not good enough for God. When Satan tempts you to despair, he reminds you of the guilt of your sin, the sin that we all share. Remember Jesus dying for you. Remember that you are saved by God's grace from start to finish. Don't ever look at your sin unless you're looking at it nailed to the cross where Jesus paid for it all. That's the first false ladder. Pretending that we can somehow build our own way to heaven. Here's the second one. Depending on those who have gone before us. Depending on those who have gone before us. And here, I'm I'm thinking particularly about our own parents. Depending on their faith, rather than trusting in Jesus for ourselves. That's another false way to heaven. That's quite popular, I've come across quite a lot here in Malaysia. It's what Jacob was depending on in our passage before he'd met God himself. He wanted the blessings, but as for knowing God, he'd just leave that part to his mum and his dad. Pretending that somehow you can separate the two. Now, of course, it's possible to be born into a godly Christian household, and it's an incredible blessing. And many of us are probably Christian here today because God used our mother or our father to teach us the gospel, to make us help us understand who Jesus was and the death he died for us. That was the case for me. I'm very thankful to God for my parents. But friends, no one is born a Christian. If you haven't personally committed your life to Christ, you need to do that. Ask God to forgive you for your sin on the basis of Christ's death for you. Don't try to shield yourself from your parents' faith. It's not effective. It's just another false ladder. Another false way that will not enable us to know God or to get to heaven. Paul sums this up for us in his first letter to Timothy. He writes, There is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. Not our works, not the faith of our parents, only by us depending on what Jesus has done. 
But finally, for those of us who are depending on Christ, who are living by grace, be encouraged. When we look at Jacob's example and his character here today, we don't see a guy who's worthy to be the father of any nation, let alone God's people. We don't see a guy who's worthy to one day be given the name Israel and to give his name to the people of God for all time. We don't see a guy who's worthy of having his name attached to God and yet God does refer to himself later in the Bible as the God of Jacob. God dealt graciously with Jacob because he chose him. And we are no different. In and of ourselves, we are totally unworthy of God's promises. So be encouraged by the way God deals with Jacob here. He's so gracious. He will change Jacob. We'll see that over the next few weeks as he comes across a worse cheat than himself, his uncle Laban. God doesn't give up on Jacob in spite of his unworthiness, in spite of his bargaining. It's the same for us. God doesn't give up on us because of our sin. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is so gracious with those whom he has chosen and saved by his Son. And I pray that, pray that that grace would fuel us to serve him faithfully this week. In our prayers, taking hold of God's promises to us in faith, not bargaining with him. In the way we see our sin, nailed to the cross of Christ, not despairing because of it. And in the way we seek to live our lives entirely to the praise of this great God who, have made this, who has made these great promises to us in Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unfathomable grace that you have shown us in Christ. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us in your mercy and by your grace to be clinging on to Jesus. We are mourning over our sin, to be constantly looking to the cross where our sin has been dealt with. And help us as your people not to be bargaining with you in our prayers, but to be taking hold of your promises by faith. And so living faithfully for you as we look forward to the land that you have promised to us, the new creation where we will dwell with you forever. Thank you that that is all by your grace. Please keep us in it this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.